My name is Dwayne Default, and welcome to Selling SaaS, a daily podcast that's built to get you quick hits of the best advice from the top experts for go-to-market strategies, sales, and product-led growth. Now let's get into today's episode. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Selling SaaS podcast. And today we got a treat for you. We've got someone from a different side of the industry who's going to help bring some insights on how the whole journey is for B2B SaaS companies when it comes from first launching, going through the startup, getting some funding and really getting out of that founder-led sales and scaling their business. And so welcome, the founder of SalesDoc, Jacob Hone. Hi, Dwayne. Thank you for inviting me and having yeah. me here on the podcast. Yeah, happy to have you. So why don't you give the audience listeners uh, a little bit of background on you personally and then kind of how you got into starting your business. Maybe I will start how I got into the sales. So it's usually the first position which you can do without any education yeah. because very often you're commission based. So yeah. everybody takes you and say, if you sell something, come and join me. Yeah. Uh, so actually I started like that with my brother selling for his small company. And then kind of I like the path and continue with that. I went through various sales positions. I end up in tech company that was startup 50 people. And after working there, there together with a friend of mine, we said, hey, how about if we set up, because we saw a lot of things which were incorrectly done at that tech company. So we said, how about if we set up the company? Firstly, doing the sales outsourcing for the tech companies. So you started an outsourcing, a sales uh, outsource company for tech companies? Yeah, for tech nice. companies. We we're in that business for four or five years. And over the time, we started moving a little bit more into the consultation because some of our clients were like, hey, we like the expertise which you have, but we don't want to outsource it to you. So can you, mm-hmm. can you train us? how you do that and can you set up the processes in our company and then we realized that we like this job more and we have also more of the impact and we're closer to the customer than as an outsourced company so really so you were closer to the customer meaning the recipient of your guys services or your customer's customer to our customer because at that moment it wasn't like hey you're the outsourced one just deliver us business but Mm. we got a more we're starting discussing how to do the business how to set up the sales departments and over the time we grew our customers grew so we started getting from the small companies where we had three people as our client that was opposite like three people company was our client or 10 people company and right now we work more with the companies which has 100 200 300 employees sizable sales teams already wow that's awesome so that's kind of how sales doc started or was there was that after that that's actually how we started that was our journey of the last of the last seven years a lot of iterations a lot of failures yeah so i mean that's kind of that's how it has to happen right like you can't i don't know any tech company that has found success on their first try. I mean, every unicorn, all the stories about like Microsoft and Slack and Salesforce and HubSpot, like all these big giants, they all started with something different. So that makes sense. So what was the process or what was it like going from those that SMB 10 employee type companies up to the 200 type companies? There a big difference in their needs. Like what was it like kind of making that shift? Yeah, well, there is a definitely difference because the sales teams looks different. It's run a little bit differently and they require a different set of skills and but for us it also meant that we got more senior consultants on board who already played that game and we can leverage them on advising to our customers and with that we were getting more and more know-how all the time so we didn't go to any other segment like 95 percent of our revenue goes from that or 90 that also helped us that we saw hundreds of customers we saw hundreds of sales teams and you start seeing the patterns the similarities and you talk to those people and and then just from talking what was successful 
useful for them and then you can replicate it also for other clients. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, you mentioned something a second ago that I want to unpack for a second. Like you mentioned the different skills a sales team needs to have when they're in a smaller environment versus larger environment. Did you mean like your guys' personal sales teams or your clients' sales team skill sets? Both. It reflects, I guess, when you look at the, we look at the companies that they have like free stages or they have more of them, but the free basic ones. The first one is you're looking for the product market fit and that's primarily founder-led sales or it should be. And there's no salesperson who can help you out with that. And if the salesperson helps you, then he should be founder as well or she should be founder. Yeah. Because that's the moment where you're getting the first customers, the value proposition is not crafted. You do the twist into the products, you do the twist into the target group and so on. Once you get your product market fit, meaning you have, if you do higher tickets, I mean like 40K, 50K ticket deal. So you have five, 10 customers who are happy with you. The, the market is big enough. They're paying you. They're recommending you somewhere else. That means you have product market fit. So then you start formalizing what you did. How did you do sales? Who was your, where it worked, where it didn't work. So you narrow it down from like super wide street to a little bit narrower, but still it's not done yet. At that moment, the typical salesperson, which you need is more like the hustler the, who has a founders like mindset. It's a pathfinder for you. So you tell him those are some indications which we have, but we're not really sure where the market is still because we have only 10 customers. Yeah. So you don't expect somebody who work for 15 in corporation and requires you to give him a playbook. Yeah. You require, you're looking for somebody who can look at the world through the same eyes as you do and is able to make the business and is able to start formalizing it even more. Yeah. So you got first one, two salespeople, the pathfinders, maybe some head of sales on the top of them and you start making business. Once you get them on track, then, then it's time when you can start scaling from two or three salespeople, you go to first 10 salespeople. And there you start also defining the roles. I have the BDR, I have the AE, I have the AM, account manager. Mm. And then you get more into the organization where you can have the, the guys which are just required to playbook. Yeah, no, that's great. And so when we look at those stages, what type of salesperson kind of fits? So we know it's the first stage, like they're in product market fits, founder-led sales. So obviously mm -hmm. the salesperson is the founder or one of them. But then in that second stage, when they're formalizing the sales process, one of the things I run into a lot of founders that want some hybrid head of sales unicorn that can sell to any segment that can build teams and understands how to build RevOps. And that's very rare. But what kind of salesperson fits in that particular role when they're trying to formalize it and it's before that scalable process and it's in between founder-led and scale? Like what type of salesperson yeah. has found best fit that? Yeah, again, here are a little bit more of approaches. What I saw in the market and work quite well and also what we what we did with our customers. So it's good to have a head of sales already who started giving a structure to that. So mm. it doesn't have to be full-time or it could be that he, but there is a, some sales know-how get it flowing into the company, somebody who played a game and you can learn from him. The good thing, like what you should be looking at is like, is that the person who was in the same phase of the company or similar phase of the company, similar deal sizes that and successfully led that company, let's say from 1 million ARR to 10 million ARR, because that's where you want to get. Because you don't want to, I always say, like always learn from the guys who play the game already. So they yeah. don't play it for the first time with you. They have their playbook and with you, they make the playbook better. I say it also on our projects when we sometimes we go into the interim head of sales positions. And if our consultant goes on the first project, he delivers the results, the impact within, I don't know, seven, eight months. If we put him on the second project and we already have the playbooks prepared, but there's no personal experience of that guy. And if we put him on the second project, then the impact is delivered within three, four months. It's mm -hmm. way faster because he just replicates what he knows already. Yeah. So someone yeah. that's kind of been there before and yeah. had success is what you're saying. Even because a 
I feel like a lot of founders that are in that stage, they try and go and find that high performing sales rep from the big logo company and they're going to come in and crush it. But I don't know about you. I've rarely seen that work. Yeah. Like if you want to burn your money, then it's a good <laughs> approach. Not sure about the impact on the pipeline. Yeah. No, usually this is not a scenario. So you look ahead of sales who some for sure. I'm not saying that all the people who were in the corporation for 10 years, that they are not capable of driving your company from stage one to stage 10. It's just the probability is low that you have to be, you still have to look for annual mindset and so on. Whereas if you look for somebody who has already proven track, he knows the game and he will play just for the second time and he will play two times, three times faster than for the first time. It just yeah. has a higher probability of winning for you. And that's yeah. how you should look at it. Yeah. Different. The interesting piece about that is because I spent a lot of t- in that world. Like I, I've taken mm-hmm. multiple companies through that stage. And what was interesting is one of the reasons why I'm in business for myself too, is like I, I found out the hard way that I wasn't, I didn't enjoy that first phase anymore. Like being that very first sales presence and having to figure everything out while trying to sell. I did that a couple of times, but then I I realized that I much preferred getting, helping people get out of that second stage. Like, and so it's taking a kind of an already process in place. Like the, if they have product market and right, they have some sales data to some degree, then I like scaling that where if you're right, it's like, if, if you're not the founder and you're trying to revamp or create sales process, there's always going to be friction. And sometimes it's just not worth the headache to go through that if your skin's not on the line for the business. And so just from my personal experience, I used to think I was that person to go in and like go and launch the product and go help people find product market fit. And it was just not enjoyable. I would so much rather be in that scale up phase. That second is more than anything else. But yeah, and it's everybody's choice. Exactly. And so there's uh, some guys who like to bring their company from 100 million ARR to 1 billion ARR. So yeah. a totally different skill set. And this guy, if you bring like who you can say, hey, this guy managed 300 people in the sales org. Mm-hmm. But then if you bring him into your org where you have two people, it doesn't work. Yeah, I have to agree with that one. I've seen that many times where companies will bring in some big VP or CRO that's recommended from the VC, the board or something. And they come in and they're doing things, but they're not doing things that make the necessary impact at that stage. And there's various things you can be doing at that stage. But yeah. So you were going to say earlier, the patterns that you started recognizing inside of these phases that kind of work or don't work, like what are some of the patterns that you see that really help these businesses get from one stage to the next in a decent amount of time? So I will just continue with this one. So that's getting, it could be just your mentor. It could be a consultant or it could be head of sales. If you can afford it, you have enough of job for him to get somebody who can advise you in that stages because it's replicating across the organization, which tech stack you need, how it should be set up, how to quickly get into the market, how to spot the opportunity, convert it into the business. Those are mm. technicalities. Then what works very well, the first salespeople, which you got, those are the hustlers. Those are the pathfinders. So I, what I usually recommend is say, look at, look for the founders who failed in their business because that's exactly who you want. They're happy to get some stable income afterwards, but they're still have the founders like mindset. So they're very entrepreneurial because at that moment, your IC thing you haven't defined, but you don't. And it's not because you define 
define it incorrectly. It's because you don't know what you don't know at that time. Yeah. And you want to have somebody who is able to react on the changes and who can come up, come to you and suggest the changes. And in the same time, somebody who doesn't give up that easily, that often failing for two months, three months, six months, he would say, hey, I'm giving up. It's not for me, but he has the mentality. No, we have to find a way and I'll do everything for that as well to find the right way to scale. How do you find the startup founders that have failed? Because I feel like that's such a weird way of looking at it. Because like you would think like hiring criteria when you're interviewing for sales reps or any other role, you're looking for a history of success that you want to bring it on. But you're saying you found success in this phase, finding kind of failed startups with their founders to come in and be the sales reps for this other startup. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's not the only criteria you get. Yeah, but it's like the (laughs) top one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's also like usually when we look at the salespeople in this stage are the ones who are who are on the hunter side. So we're looking for the achievers. So is there any path in your life where you achieve something? And it doesn't have to be necessarily professionally. It could be that you win the Olympics in mathematics when you were at elementary school. Whatever was that you had some partner, you were working hard on that to get somewhere. Not a, not a phase, not a criterion which we always look at. Do you have experience with outbound sales? And so the drill, how it is to pick up the phone 30 times or 50 times a day, every day, and you hear a lot of no's or you don't hear anything just a ringtone yeah. because that's also what you do at the beginning unless you have the luxury of getting thousands of inbound leads <laughs> and and for sure if there's something hey I started my own business it was something small when I was at the high school at the university or I set up the big business then it failed or it wasn't that big it was it was three people but I was responsible for the sales and hustling this is a person you would like to get yeah no that's awesome how do you find that is it just you do it on social is it referring into people is there some database of businesses that are no longer around like <laughs> well, how yeah, LinkedIn can, can give you a lot of search options, especially if you have the paid one for recruiters. We all obviously, since we operate on the narrow market, we know quite a lot of people already in that market. So we know that's also why we focus on just on one thing. And then definitely I can also get some referrals. Yeah, no, that's great. I don't want to spend too much, make everyone listening to this feel like you guys are a recruitment firm. <laughs> but it's like, so one of the patterns is you need great salespeople to come in at the right stage of the business. In terms of what helps founders kind of get to that next stage of the business, what other patterns do you see that really help make that leap for them? Yeah, I tell you one thing not, what not to do also. I saw that very often. It's like, hey, we made free time. We brought free customers and now let's scale the sales team to 15 people. We got an investment and now we need to start working. It doesn't work. It's just a waste of the money. And for and this stage, it's more about, okay, I'm always saying like 15 confused people is just less productive than having just three confused people. It would be leaving you and so on. So don't try to give the step to see I'm able to onboard first two salespeople and I'm able to put them on the track that they start delivering some numbers which are already quite okay. It doesn't mm. have to be 1% of the quota because most probably your quota will not be defined correctly at that mm. moment. But you see, they're able to bring the business and it's already that pays for their salary and pays for the customer acquisition costs and mathematics works. Then what makes a huge difference and what I would say is like the silver bullet. So if there is a salesperson that has that works for you quite well, look at the patterns. What is that? Is that the is it also the industry know-how which he had or is that just the attitude? The same also with the customer. Start blueprinting and thinking of the type of customer one works better than the type of customer two. Because mm. if you have them all of your thousand prospects in one bucket, then you get 40 meetings. Out of the 40 meetings you get, which is not bad. Then out of those 40 meetings, you get only five opportunities and you start thinking, okay, so I have my conversion 40 to five is a little bit more than 10%. So that is terrible. But if you mm. have it in the brackets, you realize there is a one bracket or one bucket where I made 30 meetings and no conversion and there's not a bucket where I 
made 10 meetings and I have five opportunities out of that. And it tells you, okay, so this is my ICP actually. Because if you didn't think of it in this way, then you would try to say, hey, we need to put this and that feature into my product to serve the other part of the market which doesn't respond to your, to your product. But you don't have to. You just have to select the market where you're the fit. Yeah, so instead of changing the product, you just change who you're talking to is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah you can change who you talk to and the world is, is still quite big. So you don't have to talk to everybody, especially if you're HP and you have hundreds of thousands of employees across the world. Yes. But if you're a small startup with 10 people, 20 people, it doesn't price changes. Yeah. So what you're saying is instead of when you have a moment or a glimmer of interest in your product, first, don't just hire a bunch of employees, right? You got to wait a little bit until you have a documented process and then hire people to backfill. But even then it's not 20 people a month or 10 people a month. It's like hire like two sales reps, maybe every couple of months to make sure that the system is repeatable. And then once you kind of have like a confirmation of that, then you can start scaling your hiring. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because how would you onboard 10 people if you've never done it before? Probably. And yeah. How would it look like? It was just a complete mess. Yeah. I wouldn't go this way. Well, enough said on that. Well, it's an interesting topic because I think one thing that a lot of companies realized too late in the game was that, yes, you may have some product market fit. You have some talk tracks and conversions that look okay, but they don't have any of their internal process figured out. They don't have like their hiring flow, they're interviewing, they don't have a sales team onboarding for training, they don't have their CRM set up correctly. It's like, yeah, your product and your positioning may be okay, but on the back end, it's a complete mess. Now, would you say that's equally as important as product market fit in scaling companies? Or is that something that kind of gets figured out along the way? Well, for sure, you cannot set up the processes, all the processes up front. So you constantly iterate. So it's not like, hey, we sit on our asses for half of a year and try to think of how to define everything. But yeah. you, you do it step by step. So firstly, you say, OK, I'm able to onboard two people, 10 people and put them onto the track. If I'm able to do so, then I, yeah, then I can scale to 40, 50 because it's quite robust. I have my sales enablement. I have my recruitment. I have defined criteria, which I'm looking for the people. If I get them the first day into my company, I exactly know what to do, when to do. I have some library already of the know-how which I want to transfer to them. So it is along the way what I'm just saying. As soon as you can, start formalizing what you know so you can get back to that and fix it. That's also for us with the recruitment. When we're looking for the people internally into the sales, we got great people. But after six months, they were leaving us. I was like, <laughs> hey, what the hell is happening? And then we started doing the loss review on the people. I think, hey, so what was there and what wasn't there? And based on that, we iterate and iterate. And right now we have a quite decent playbook for recruitment internally. So that once we're looking for a person, we exactly know for sure we're not 100. It's never 1%, but we're not percent that whoever we hire, we keep four out of 10, but we keep eight out of 10, nine out of 10 because we have very well defined the profile and we know already what to pay attention to. Yeah. Why do you think companies don't do that? I feel like we're talking about stuff that founders just don't do for some reason. Like what, what do you think keeps them from slowing yeah. down and going through the steps? Well, I just say I don't like the formalization either. So for me, <laughs> if I didn't see the impact on my business when we started, for me, seven years ago, if you were telling me this one, I would be a yeah, you're like, corporate stuff you're telling me. Right. <laughs> but I can do that with my gut feeling. I can recognize you 
is the right person or not. And guess what? I cannot. And so I realized that several years ago and now trying to put everything into the blueprints. But again, not to over-engineer it, just formalize what you know, spend 5% of your time on formalizing your know-how, which you got from the business. Because once you have it formalized, you can back to that, you can adjust it and it can make it better. Yeah. And so just so everyone understands, what do you mean by formalize? Well, so the first time, like we're talking about the salespeople, like for sure you say, this is your responsibilities. That's what we offer you. This is who we are as a company. So what are the criteria you're looking for? Sometimes you have it written down. And then the question is, which of them are the must criteria? Which of them are the nice to have criteria? Not very companies have it put it on paper. They have it in their head, but you have two founders and each of them has a different idea in their head. So it's better put that on the paper. Yeah. Then you're still looking and then during the interview is more structured afterwards because you have, hey, here are three massive criteria which I need to ask for and validate if the person has them. And then I have another five criteria which are nice to have, but I also need to validate them. Then you hire the person. Eventually the person stays with you or the person leaves you. And then you start thinking of, hey, was there anything missing? And you get back to that paper which you created half a year ago and say, what are the criteria that he did have, that he did not have? And maybe I should readjust the paper which I created and put down one more criteria. And Mm -hmm. then one more criteria, for instance, for us was we thought that we can make outbound salesperson from whoever who comes to sales and tells us, hey, I would like to do outbound sales. And and we're looking, hey, is the person smart? Is is there empathy? Do they want to, are they coachable and so on? But what we were missing there is if they didn't have the experience with the outbound sales, it was a very high probability that they would leave us because they wouldn't like it. So instantly by putting there this one, hey, it doesn't really matter what was for sales, but we want to know that you had your Excel in front of you 10 years ago and you were making the phone calls or you had the paper with the with the phone numbers and you were making the phone calls. So what is that about? And by implementing this one, it automatically, we went from 50% to 70% like the, the people stayed with us. Wow. Because they, they were not leaving us because saying, hey guys, we love the company. We like what you do. We like you as the leaders. We like the progress, but outbound sales is not for me. There's a big difference. Like, And I, I've hired hundreds of sales reps over the 15 years, maybe more than that. And there's a huge difference, especially when you're hiring managers. Like if you're trying to place a manager at a company and the manager is supposed to come into an organization and help lead a specific initiative or oversee a team of SDRs or a strategic account executives. And if they don't have the direct experience doing those things, not I'm not saying that person needs to have been a dedicated BDR doing 100 outbound calls a day in order to be able to lead a team of BDRs. But it's like they have to have experience on knowing what good looks like, knowing what suck feels like. Like, And I remember the day of when I was selling insurance in my early 20s, I got a stack of spread it out and just slammed on my desk. And that was it. It was like, here's a highlighter, go. And I would call people all day long. They're like, yeah, your associate called us yesterday. And there was like no way to connect the dots or anything. There was no CRMs. And then they were like, here, try this updated yellow pages. And it was just like, just go down the list. Don't call these types of businesses, only call these ones. And it's like, it just, it teaches you something different when it comes to sales specifically. And having that type of experience really sets candidates apart. And frankly, if they know what it feels like to get rejected that many times or just know knows what it feels like to dial a phone a hundred times and leave a hundred voicemails for five days in a row and they still show up to do it, they're going to be successful somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I added similar. I was selling stocks over the phone. Nice. It's an interesting world like to look at all the technology that sales reps have now and they're like, oh, I can't dial the phone. I'm like, yeah, you can. Maybe you're just in your own way a little bit, but it's like just go sell 100% commission for a few months and then come back and you're going to be thankful there's a CRM in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just looking back 15, 12, 15 years ago, like how technology has changed so many ways that people sell and buy. It's remarkable. But even now with that technology that sales reps have or companies in general, people 
still, from my experience, people still want to buy from people. Yeah, we have AI and all these automations and product-led growth, but there's like this threshold of money that people are willing to spend that if there's not a, another human on the other end of the line, it's harder to get them to cross over to that. And so how, and it's kind of off topic a little bit, but it's like, what have you seen when it comes to implement technology and having those recommendations for your guys' clients? Are you working with people that are, they think they need to have every single piece of technology that's possible? Or are you working with people that don't want technology and they want to do manual first? Like where have you found that happy medium or where people are with technology or not with that? I don't know how to ask the question, but it's like, what just the tech? Yeah, I understand. Listen, there is, I think the amount of technology which you implement in sales also should be reflecting the maturity of your sales organization. And I will explain it a little bit more. Yeah. So you start your sales organization and you buy 10 cool tools and you don't use any of them. You end up mailing from because it just you cannot implement them all of them at once and you have a certain level of the way how you lead the sales department and methodologies inside to leverage the technologies. Technologies mm. are for sure but you have to be reasonable. And so to get more specific into that definitely right now in nowadays world if everybody uses software for cadences, outreach IO, sales loft, groove, whichever and you're just manually sending out emails then they will always outperform you because it's like being on the racetrack and you're driving for, for Mondeo and they're driving Ferraris and even yeah. though they are not such a good drivers they will be still faster so that's so there are some of the but implementing revenue forecasting at that time wouldn't make any sense because yeah. it's too advanced for you at, at that moment when you have 30 salespeople having revenue forecasting that definitely is required but in the same time your organization should be already used to use the CRM used to use the sales engagement platforms so all the interaction and data are stored in the organization or in the CRM sorry which you can analyze and make the forecast on that so without tools I think it's very hard to do the sales right now but sales what would you say is the most impactful or useful skill for a sales rep you don't have to name a name or anything like that but just a specific type is it like a cadence tool is it like the, oh, the, the CRM itself or like where have you seen the biggest impact for sales reps well if you do outbound inbound and that's all, what all the sales organization have right now is the exactly the cadence tools because that can speed you up a lot the CRM if you're like I think managing the deal in general mm-hmm. is the part where you require least of the technologies because you go on the so it's more about being systematic having the methodologies implemented and put everything into some of the CRM which you use whereas yeah. it sells for something else that doesn't matter that much at that moment Yeah, but it matters a lot when you do the outbounding when you do outbound sales or the prospecting that depends a lot once you do marketing without the technologies you cannot do that so yeah, so yeah I would call it CRM and sales engagement platform is a must right now also what's becoming a must is the call analytics so there's something yeah Gong did that Outreach IO implements that also with yeah. them so if you may call that there is analytics for the leader because the leader can say hey this salesperson talk too much or use this question he shouldn't and so on and definitely what is and that's but also to the tools the source of the database yeah uh, I what's interesting is those are the primary ones that I try to help companies optimize as well everything else past that is kind of a luxury yeah. right like if you got a cool meeting a custom meeting link tool that does certain things or if you got this automated texting tool or something or these a whatever it's like that's great but what I've seen a lot of times companies will bring on a lot of tech and think that's going to help their sales team be better but it becomes a hindrance because it gets in the way when in reality you've got to focus on making the sales rep better and then the tool amplifies their yeah. skills and I think too many companies are trying to replace the efforts of training with tools thinking it's going to have the bigger benefit and it just ends up draining their margin exactly and 
because it's quite easy to sell to salespeople and salespeople are selling it inside of the organization. They always come to them and say, hey, if you use our tool, uh, we can increase your win rate by 15%. So yeah. right now you're making 10 million. So with us, you will be making 11.5. I yeah. say, okay, let's have it. They internally go and say, we need the tool and it costs only 100K for the organization, but it brings us 1.5 million. Right. So everybody looks at it and say, hey, the business case makes sense. So let's buy it. Right. And nobody used it. Right. The ROI on that's really easy to figure out. It's funny. Salespeople selling to salespeople. So to kind of pivot a little bit, going back to patterns from our earlier part of the conversation, I'm interested on, of all the businesses you guys have worked with, different sales reps, different organizations and whatnot, what are some of the patterns that you guys see that keep businesses from being successful? Whether it's early stage product market fit or going from stage two to three, like what are some things that, that companies struggle with getting away from? Yeah, that's like the product market fit and the, the first salespeople, usually the problem is with not qualifying and disqualifying enough. I would call it in this stage, the number one killer for you is having maybe in the pipeline. Because if you come to the company and say, hey, we close none of the deals, but we have 40 opportunities in the pipeline. So we're just about to close it and we're quite good. As you're actually in quite mess because where's your focus? And then you start looking at the pipeline and you realize that there's no pipeline. Those are just discussions which you had with one person from the multinational company who tells you looks good. We might have any buy it. Bank, stage three, let's give them proposal. So as soon as they breathe on the phone, they're an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So are those companies, when you're seeing that, are those companies afraid to disqualify them and push at the beginning? Away? Yeah, at the beginning, yes. But we put together with them a sales process and the sales process, how we do that is like you have stage one, stage two, stage three, four, you call them whichever way you want. And then you have milestones in between the stages. So in order to move from stage one to stage two, you have to have need discover why the need is in the company what is the urgency? Who are the key stakeholders? Is there any competition? Bank, you go to stage two. And in stage two, you go deeper and so on. So uh, talking to economic buyer, building champion, understanding yeah. deeply what the organization wants and uh, decision criteria and so on. Yeah. And they look at it and say, yeah, it makes sense. And I say, okay, fine. So let's take your opportunities and link it back to the sales process. And I realize, hey, didn't pass the qualification stage. Didn't pass the qualification stage. This one in yeah. stage five actually moves to stage one. So all the pipeline shifts to the left. And, and then once they see it, they say, oh, okay, maybe we should put a little bit of more of the structure into, into our pipeline. And that costs a lot of time and money because then you spend uh, half year, a year working on the pipeline with the wrong customers, believing that you close the, that you will eventually close them. You burn the money and then you end up after a year with no runway, with no money, with no energy and with no customers. So it's better to be a little bit more strict at the beginning and be honest to yourself, which is quite hard once you're a founder, you want to believe that they won't buy it. Yeah, it's like I'm remembering some social media craze if you, even I see it now it's like pipeline cures all where it's like increase your pipeline get as many opportunities always be opening and it's like yeah, no. and more opportunities isn't <laughs> going to solve anything because pipeline just it's fake it's like looking yeah. at weighted pipeline versus late stage pipeline it's like no you just got to look at the quality of the opportunities inside of that pipeline to see how close they are to matching your ICP and then you can use those in, in your forecast so you were saying to get from that right so companies they're not strict enough on how they're qualifying deals or they're not disqualifying them. Everyone's an opportunity. And in order to get from that, what you're saying is there needs to be a formalized qualification process. Like you kind of you rifled off a bunch of stuff there from Medic. And so you're saying companies just need to implement a, a basic way to qualify meaning. And so when we say qualify, it's like, hey, they match the definition of your ideal customer profile and they show buyer intent, which I think a lot of what companies miss. It's like, hey, they they may match the definition of an ICP, but 
that you haven't determined any buying intent from them. So they technically shouldn't be an opportunity. Where do you see companies kind of miss on that? Like, is do you see buyer intent not in the definitions of opportunities or like, where do you see that falling apart? Not knowing enough about your customer. So usually the problem is you talk to one person, they talk about, they talk all the time about the product. The person on the other side is usually a potential user buyer and tells you, hey, this is great. This is what we should have it and so on. That's just one person's perspective. Might be your champion, might not. And you don't know it because you don't know the definition of champion. You don't know the definition of economic buyer. So very often, if you make the deal, then it's more of the hope strategy or luck strategy than that systematic approach. Because sometimes it happens to us that we go to the customer and we ask them, hey, what's your sales process? Hey, we go on the first meeting, we present the solution. We go on the second meeting, we present the solution and then we give proposal and then we have a business. So, well, it's not a sales process. No, that's just a presentation. You can put that on a website. That's really easy. Let's just say there was a founder listening to this and they were trying to get through that second stage and they're struggling with not closing more of their opportunities, right? So they're, everything's an opportunity, hammer and nail situation and none of their pipelines closing. Like what is one thing they can look for in those deals that's going to help them either close more or be more realistic with themselves? I would put a two, okay? Go ahead. Uh, the first one, which I always ask and that's relevant to your buyer intent, I ask why the company should buy it this year and why they didn't buy it last year and why they shouldn't buy it next year. Why not? Yeah. It tells you about the urgency and also tells you level of know-how of the company. And the other question is, with whom do you talk to and what's the role of the person? If you're making 100K deal and you're talking just to one person and you don't even know well, what it is a marketing manager, but yeah. you know anything about this one and like how who else approves the budget and so on, and yeah. you didn't talk to anybody else, most probably you will not make the deal. Yeah, that person may be excited and they yeah. may see an issue in their process like marketing manager they're like oh our, our email automation tool sucks and you're in there trying to sell a big email tool and the, you've confirmed the pain you confirm why they want it because they're the ones going to be dealing with it but if you haven't figured out if there's any budget or if there's any room for them to do that this year then it's like it's more of a hope than it is yeah, an actual opportunity exactly and what i'm very allergic to when i hear <laughs> on the pipeline review is like i think i assume in my opinion it's like mm-hmm. remove this one from your pipeline if you think if you then just call the take it as a hypothesis and call the customer and validate this one and you see that very often that you are incorrect yeah it's and i think when i'm implementing pipeline stages for companies or if i'm a fractional leader somewhere it's one of the first things i really try to do is like really one blueprint everything but nail down exit criteria and like what does it take to move them because it really puts a different perspective on how the sales team approaches the prospects like they the questions that they ask how they follow up with them how they move them through what's crazy is what I found and this may be different from you guys but it's like when the sales rep focuses more on what they need to know about the prospect instead of what they need to show the prospect the disaster like yeah they buy from you instead of selling them there's no haggling there's less negotiation and so if they just spend time to do the stuff in the beginning follow the steps follow the process deals close which is crazy and they like you mentioned earlier like seven years ago you're like oh this corporate crap all about it's like well it's within those processes and those policies and all of that foundation that ends up resulting in better business, which then becomes a scalable process and all because you decided to set your foundation. Exactly. Yeah. It's more talkless. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Like we all want to do business. We all want to sell. We want to grow and do all the fun things that we started our businesses for, right? 
what really sucks is the realization of, ah, I've got to do so much of this process in order to make that happen. And if you don't do that, you just struggle. You've got 17 different tools doing multiple different things. You're out of compliance. You're overlapping things. You can't figure out what the salesperson said to this one prospect six months ago that made them churn today. And it just, it feels like you're barely above water as a founder or a sales leader in that company. And when you take the time early on to establish the process, bring in a company that's been there, done that and slow down for half a second and establish these things, it makes your life six months from now, 10 times better and typically higher margins. So you make more money as a founder. Yeah. So I I, obviously I live in that space too. So it's a a daily occurrence for me. So we're running up on time. We got a few minutes left and I don't know if we got to anything you really wanted to talk about, but is there something that you really want the listeners to walk away with? Like, is there, if you can give them any nugget of information or if there's something that you want them to know, go to market with, sell with, like, what would that be? Well, we spent some time already in that, that was the recruitment of the salespeople. And we also very often help our customers firstly, either to, firstly, either to recruit the salespeople. So we have the talent acquisition or if they recruit their own way, we sit on the interviews with the candidates. And it's what I would recommend because there's no bigger cost for you in the sales department having the wrong people in your sales organization because you get the wrong person yeah. to make the math. Three months of hiring, then you get them into the organization, you pay the salary, you burn your cash on the development and on running your company, then you fire the person after six months and you end up with uh, zero and you do that again. So that would be for me, be careful about who you get into the company. And if you're not a salesperson, which many of the founders are tech people, right? Yeah. So go and find a mentor for yourself. Go and find somebody who can help you out with that. It's like for me, if somebody would ask me, how would you hire an developer? I'm like, how should I know it? But yeah. I've never done it. I don't know yeah. how, how, how that should be done. This is one of the things find a mentor as soon as you can for for because the know-how gives you shortcuts of years and saving millions, millions of euros yeah. or dollars. Yeah. And as soon as you can define your first sales process, ICP on a piece of paper, doesn't really matter. Something that's a little bit formalized and start yeah. looking at the sales in the more critical way, not to be pessimistic, but to be honest. Yeah, that's a good one to end on. Just I feel like more strict on how you're qualifying deals makes people feel like you're being pessimistic or you're looking for ways to kind of break the system. And in reality, it's like you're letting deals come through that are probably going to cancel if they do close anyways. And that's just going to be even harder to deal with in the long run. So it's safer to be more strict up front so you can and then document that process and then just make sure that you're very kind of have the same level of strictness when it comes to bringing on new sales reps, right? Get a mentor to show you how they have done it before in a similar situation. So you don't make expensive mistakes that, yeah, we want to learn from our own mistakes and whatnot. But it's like when you're in a startup, whether you're bootstrapped or you've got VC money or private equity money, whatever, it's still money that gets lost. And for me, I'd rather lean on other people's experience instead of beat my head against the wall for six months and wish I didn't do something. And so I 100% agree. It's like, hey, go find people that have done that, have been there before that you can lean on for whatever situation and then just actually execute on the advice they give you. Yeah, exactly. That's somebody who has done it and you can feel the sweat and blood on their hands from using it. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jacob, man, it's been great. And I'd love to have you on the show and I appreciate you spending the time and let me know if there's anything that we can do to help you guys and your guys is I know you guys have been around for seven years and so I'm pretty sure you guys are fine. But if there's ever any question or anything you guys need, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Absolutely. Thank you again a lot for having this uh, podcast. Yeah, definitely, man. All right. I'll see you around, Jacob. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Selling SaaS Podcast. And if you got value from today, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 